0: Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I interview memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Gary Steingart. His memoir is called Little Failure. It's published by Random House. And Gary, let's start off by talking about your childhood nicknames. Okay. <laughs> Which ones do you want to hear about well, first? I guess Little Failure is as good as <laughs> any.
1: Little Failure was my mother's nickname for me. It's really a combination of English and Russian. Failure failure is the English part. "Chka" is the diminutive meaning little. So my mother was trying to emphasize that in her eyes I was a little failure at this point in my life. I had just graduated from... Oberlin College, and I was uh, writing a book. Uh, it was going to be my first book, The uh, Russian Debutante's Handjob, or whatever it was called. And my mother was pressuring me to go to law school. And I was living in this little studio apartment with many friendly roaches and, you know, not much in the way of savings. So to emphasize how she felt about my life to date, my mother nicknamed me Little Failure. And it kind of stuck. I felt very much a failure for a very long time. That's and, what parents are for, I think, okay. to remind you of that.
0: At an even younger age, your, your father I was basically calling you snotty. You know? <laughs> <laughs> very affectionately, I think, mm-hmm. because I, I was a very
1: snotty child. I, I had terrible asthma, a lot of other bronchial and upper respiratory problems, and my nose was quite stuffed with with stuff. So snotty was a cute little nickname for me. In mm-hmm. Russian, it's just
0: And it's interesting that you you, you leave that off by saying that he did it affectionately, because one of the themes of the memoir for me, uh-huh. as I was reading it, is the kind of combination of affection and... I don't know, disdain isn't really the right word, but your relationship with your father is a very complex one. It's very complex uh, with both parents, I think,
1: but also what this book tries to do, I don't know if it succeeds or not, is to try to figure out how they became the parents that they were, which requires a lot of going back to Russia, trying to understand the culture a lot more. And in my mind, it's almost as if in some ways they didn't really emigrate, that they continued life in Russia here in the States. And... There you do treat your child differently. There is the mixture of pride and disdain in the same breath so that you could say something affectionately, which to American ears would seem like a a huge insult. But because I grew up partly in Russia and partly in America, I would partly take it as a huge insult. I both knew that I was being loved by my parents, but that I had failed them ultimately.
0: In the early scenes when you're in Russia or the Soviet Union, you do display that sort of childhood attachment to that cruel treatment where you're like, well, this cruelty is the best sign that I know that people are paying attention to me yeah. right there's that
1: old Russian saying uh, it's something like he if he doesn't he who doesn't hit doesn't love and I think that that's kind of a grotesque statement but at the same time the idea is that you need to bind yourself to other people and emotional violence and physical violence is the best way to do it that's the best way to know that you are forever in someone's heart you're also underneath someone's fist.
0: and in figuring out how your parents became the types of parents they are you also dig into their personal histories as well and they're family pasts. One of the defining events for my life, even though it happened in 1943, was
1: the death of my grandfather, uh, who was killed at the front, uh, right outside of Leningrad. He was an, uh, a soldier, a sergeant, and he was uh, killed when the German troops advanced against Leningrad. And, and my father was raised by a very cruel man whom I knew, his stepfather. That was a very terrible, very violent relationship, and I think that if my grandfather had lived, it would have been a very different kind of childhood for my father, and partly I think it would be a very different childhood for me. And on my mother's side, too, I mean, huge chunks of the family were killed, killed by Hitler or sent to prison camps by Stalin, and so you get this very kind of eviscerated family. You get a family tree that's just pruned. Many of the best people are gone. Unbelievable hardship, you know, and there's no way that that can't have an effect on who your parents are going to be, obviously. This is not people who grew up in the Midwest, let's say, in happy circumstances.
0: And you kind of contrast your own immediate immigrant experiences when you came over to, what's the line there, my grandma Polia is a true immigrant because of what happened to her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My grandmother
1: came here in her 50s and her job was cleaning toilets for rich American women in in Queens, completely struggling with the language, which was very hard to learn at that age. That is more, in my mind, more of a true immigrant story than coming here as a seven-year-old and you know, going to Stuyvesant and then Oberlin and all that stuff. But but she was also the most cheerful of us all, I think, in a way. She came, she was grew up under Stalin and Hitler and all that. And so for her, cleaning toilets in an American bathroom was a step up almost. It seemed like a very fortunate life. And she was very cheerful, at least with me. She was incredibly cheerful. And she was the one person who loved me so unconditionally. That was my template for unconditional love. It wasn't, you don't go to law school, you're a failure. It was. It was just... Whatever you do, (laughs) you're my you're my sunshine, is what she would say in Russian.
0: Was it Grandma Polya who got you started at writing? It was a different grandma, different different grandma. Grandma. Really, the story of my life uh, is is the story of grandmothers who were so kind
1: to me and so involved with my life. And Grandma Galia stayed behind in Leningrad when we emigrated. But before we left, she was a journalist for Evening Leningrad, a newspaper in Leningrad, and. She asked me to write my first book, which I called Lenin and His Magical Goose. I was obsessed with a statue of Lenin outside of our apartment house. So I wrote a book, which she paid me for in little slices of cheese, a couple of slices of cheese for every page. And I loved cheese so much that I kept writing more and more and more. I think it was about 100 pages when I finished, and it was the story of Lenin meeting a magical goose and invading Finland to start a socialist revolution there. And then the goose turned out, I think, to be a Menshevik, and Lenin ate him in the end. I was obsessed as a five—this is, I was five five years old. I was obsessed with the Russian Civil War, so I kept reading all these books about Bolsheviks and Mensheviks. At the front of the memoir, there's actually a, a picture of me at five reading this giant book on the Russian Civil War of 1917, wearing a little sailor outfit. So grandmother really instilled in me a love of writing at age five, and it was just very moving, and I was very sad to leave her when we emigrated, because she was too sick uh, she was already getting a kind of dementia, and she had to stay behind. And my mother, of course, was heartbroken because her whole family remained in Russia.
0: When you came over with your parents and came to Queens and then enrolled in Hebrew school, the, sort of the next stage of your writing began.
1: Right. I was a very hated kid. I remember it was the years of Ronald Reagan's Evil Empire speech, all those movies, Red Dawn, Red Gerbil, Red Hamster, what have you, you know. And I, and I felt like you know I was the big red kid. My parents had expected that. After the anti-Semitism of Russia, that the kids were going to love me because I was Jewish, you know, but that's not how it worked out at all. I was Russian in their eyes. I had a big fur coat and a big fur hat, and I was clearly the enemy. And so I was very much despised, I felt like. So I decided to to write a satire of the Torah. We were all being force-fed the Torah and the Talmud and all that, and the kids had to chant and memorize this stuff that didn't mean really anything to us, to many of us. So I wrote my own version of the Torah called the Genora, which So Exodus became Sexodus, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was a very raunchy, horny kind of book that only an 11- or 12-year-old could write. And it became... I wasn't popular exactly, but my first sort of friends were made because of that. You know, the kids felt that there was a kind of... Oh, this guy has something to show us. And, and I wrote other. I wrote a little novel called The Challenge, a science fiction novel set on a planet I think called Atlanta or something. We were all obsessed with Atlanta because we heard there were, there was cheap housing there. Uh, so if we moved down there, we could probably have a pool. One of the teachers made a special story hour for me where for 10, 20 minutes at
0: the end of class, I read to the class.
1: I still had an accent then, but this was, you know, it was the first sign that one can be loved for something that one does. In this case, tell a story.
0: And I think you, you mentioned that it was in, Doing that story hour segment, as you were reading your story to your classmates, that it was kind of the first time that your, your accent became penetrable penetrable
1: and and it got better and better in my first years i really didn't have any friends and there was nobody to talk to and when i first came i would just talk to myself in russian in the lunchroom people would say i was crazy but i just needed someone to talk to and i talked to myself and I, i knew russian better than english at that point by quite a bit at home we spoke only russian my parents didn't speak english it's sad to say but writing sort of advanced my social life as it has for the last 40 years you know
0: one of your inspirations for the challenge was, and, and this was great for me because it, it sounds like we were reading Isaac Asimov's Science Fiction magazine yeah. at the same time in the 80s. Right,
1: right, yeah, I remember every issue. I think I remember every cover. It was, I think I, I have a bunch of them still. they really something. And that was very hard language because a lot of it was scientific. A lot of it was, I mean, those were complicated stories, you know. This wasn't the clean simplicity of Raymond Carver, let's say. It's just very abstruse and complicated stuff. So that was kind of a way for me to learn English, too. And I loved science fiction. Couldn't get enough of it. Uh, Wanted to emigrate to some distant planet and start all over again very much. After a while, my parents described to Playboy. This was sort of a Russian dream, the decadence of the West describing to Playboy. But I remember almost waiting for Asimov with greater anticipation than, than the naked ladies of Playboy.
0: After puberty, that changed a little bit. So then you move on to Stuyvesant. And we should have probably backtracked and talked about how you were a little Reaganite all through Hebrew (laughs) school. Okay, let's just skip ahead and say like, so you go to high school and the little Reaganite becomes like a total stoner. I mean,
1: Hebrew school was very easy. I was getting good grades, not in Hebrew studies, but in general studies, math. My father taught me out of a uh, Soviet textbook in math, which was, you know, 10 years more advanced than anything in America. So I thought I was the best student that ever lived. But by the time I got to Stuyvesant, the math and science high school, I was one of the worst students. There were all these kids from other immigrant nations, India, China, Korea, who were a hundred times better and and a thousand times more hardworking than I was. And all of a sudden, I started getting bad grades. And I just felt like, uh, I mean, I felt like a failure even before my mother coined the term little failure. I I was devastated that I would get these grades. I felt so bad. And I met, you know, the wrong crowd, as they say, although it was the right crowd for me. And we just started getting high all day and, and drunk and hanging out in the park, uh, Stuyvesant Park, which is two blocks away from where I live now, and just being very dissolute. And my worldview started to change. I, I started to give up on all these grand dreams of a big McMansion in the suburbs and voting for Reagan Bush all my life you know what I what happened I guess is I fell in love with Manhattan which growing up in Queens it was so distant I, I didn't even know where Manhattan was for the longest time I always thought that that little clump of buildings on on the on, uh, where Union Turnpike meets Queens Boulevard I thought that was Manhattan you know there's like three skyscrapers so when I got to the real Manhattan I was I was incredibly shocked by it and at first very scared of it but then I really fell in love with it and it was a different very different Manhattan in the late 80s I mean it was there was still muggings and, you know, it felt a lot more dangerous, but that danger also felt very exciting. And there were so many cool things happening, great music. Manhattan was just a very different place. It was um, lively and dangerous and fun. And I just, I went crazy
0: for it, you know, and I thought, how can I ever leave? And by senior year, it sounds like you had learned how to game the system at at, at Stuyvesant so that you could put in the minimal effort. Yeah,
1: I I mean, (laughs) it's too bad. I mean, now I wish I really had gotten the real education there and Science is fascinating. I wish I knew more about it, especially as we enter an age of sort of hyper technology. But I didn't. I learned very little. I knew I learned, as you said, I learned how to game the system, and I didn't learn much. So by the time I got to Oberlin, you, you know, I, I knew what real work was like. But Oberlin was so easy compared to Stuyvesant. One class involved watching Blade Runner. Another students are allowed to teach each other at Oberlin.
0: So one class involved just dropping
1: acid and listening to the Beatles. And
0: and you became, in, in your own description, a, a nervous young man with a ponytail. A small substance abuse problem and a hemp pin on your tie.
1: Well, uh, yeah, maybe I maybe I'm exaggerating. Small. It was big. I mean, my nickname uh, was Scary Gary because I was known for ingesting large amounts of everything. At one point, I, there's a scene where I'm sort of being carried around campus by a bunch of well-wishing people as they take me to my dorm room, where we proceed to get very trashed. and And I met my first girlfriend at that party, who changed my life. She was a girl from North Carolina, from the south. And um she was the first girlfriend I ever had. This was probably sophomore year of college. And it was interesting because I for, for so long I'd cultivated this kind of persona, the stoner, the Republican back in high school. And all of a sudden I, I had someone I could talk to and really tell all. And it was scary at first, but, you know, this was sort of slipping out of the mask. In a way, writing a memoir is sort of like that. You know, I use humor and satire in so much of my previous work. And here there's none of the, well, there's humor, but... You can't do satire because this stuff really happened. Talking to her was amazing, and, and after college, I, I cultivated a lot of female friends. Uh, in fact, they were all female friends because I felt it was easier to talk to women than to men and to tell these things without sounding, you know, without being ashamed the way one is in male-to-male relationships.
0: But there was also one man who, around the same period, John, who became pretty much as much as a a father figure. A kind of father figure. mm -hmm. He was former uh, soap opera writer living in Manhattan. uh, And he wanted to make
1: a documentary about me and some other people called Only Children. He was an only child. I'm an only child. So were all these other people, including a dominatrix, that was fascinating to him. The 90s were a time when people were fascinated by dungeons and all this other stuff in New York. Yeah, and so he, he became a friend of mine, but also a kind of mentor. And he made sure that i finished my first book and he also made sure that i went to psychoanalysis which i deeply needed uh, at that point
0: yeah it's fascinating as i'm reading this that here's a guy who loves you as much if not more than well we shouldn't say if not more than your parents but clearly a different way in a different way as much as your parents and what he says about you in his documentary is i've never ceased to be amazed by gary's intolerance mean-spiritedness and selfishness And as much as that hurts, that sounds like, based on what you've told everybody in the memoir, a pretty good description of your 20s.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So intolerant, so selfish, and just angry, you know, and not knowing where the anger was coming from. Taking it out on people like John, who meant meant me quite well. Sucking up to people who didn't mean me well. That's a terribly
0: constructed (laughs) sentence, but
1: you know what I mean. Going out with a woman who, after I went out with her, attacked... Another gentleman who apparently looked like me with a hammer and put him in the hospital and is still on parole in the state of Florida. So making these terrible, terrible choices, turning it inward, being, of course, drunk out of my mind for for many years. uh, And and more importantly, not minding the store, not doing the work that I'm supposed to be doing, not writing my first uh,
0: novel. And then as you say, he got you into psychoanalysis and... You write about how psychoanalysis really just saved your life. It did. And I mean, it's not for
1: everyone. and I know there's a lot of people who are think that it's uh, too indulgent. And, and and it is a very huge investment in time and money. But within a year, I think, I was not dating people who attacked other people with hammers. I had gotten a book deal in a year. I was too ashamed before that to send out the Russian debutante's handbook to any publisher. But I met Chang-Rae Lee, the wonderful Korean-American writer who hooked me up with his publisher and immediately I had a book deal. And so I mean my life just changed so dramatically after that began that it really was the second stage of my life. And that was twenty nine, no twenty eight, maybe twenty seven that happened. So yeah, it's strange to think that I lived more of my life under that crazy regime before I got my first book deal and then there's this there's only like fourteen years after it. So two thirds of my life was spent in complete anxious
0: insanity you know you talked earlier about the idea of, of letting the mask slip and using the humor but not being able to, to use the satire and it's interesting in that like psychoanalysis this memoir really seems like a way for you to sort of like directly confront those pains you know there's like line maybe halfway through where you say every moment in my childhood is as important to me as every moment right yeah. now in terms of figuring out well like how the hell did I get here and get to this point? And whether it was like you know, the point where you were like an insufferable asshole right. or the point now where you know you things Where like, I'm still an
1: insufferable asshole, but but, but, but successful but better successful and
0: better <laughs> dressed, yeah. <laughs>
1: we change, we don't change, you know. We we learn to cope, but someone calls you a little failure at a formative age, part of you will always feel like a little failure. It goes away, there's a response to it that's different. Hopefully when you have children the response doesn't get that doesn't get passed on. You learn to block that. You learn to shunt it into something else. You learn to sublimate it into fiction or or memoirs or whatever, or screenplays, whatever it is that you're writing. It gets better. It gets a lot better. But at the same time, it doesn't fully go away. I mean, on your deathbed, when all the stuff starts rushing through your brain and you start to remember your life, all of those points are just as valid as any other. Success, failure, love of parents, fear of parents, it's all part of this endless cocktail that you drink through the rest of your life, if that's the right metaphor.
0: But like you say, it gets better. You know, you talk about how shortly after Russian debutante's handbook came out, your parents get on the phone with you, and your father basically calls you, in Russian, a dickhead. Yes. And you're like, okay. It just hit me that I was already in analysis, and
1: I thought, you know, this should be the happiest moment of my life, but I'm being called a dickhead. <laughs> so I thought, uh, this can't really go on. I mean, I'll always love them. I'll always have a relationship with them, but I can never take what they say as seriously as I did before. I can never allow them to impinge on my happiness because they can't help themselves they are from a culture where they just can't stop the worry they can't stop the the feeling that the worst will happen to them and to me and so at that point i just had to say look i i, I need a divorce from this i'll always call you as you're supposed to call it in russia you know if you're supposed to in russia you're supposed to call your parents every day i call them once a week, but I could never really take what they say seriously, you know, because this is this is my life. I have to live it. I wrote my first book and I got a book deal. I mean, I, I'm just, if I'm not proud of
0: that, then, then what can I be proud of? It's like, you get to the point, you've got three books under your belt and you're having dinner with your folks and your father's like, you know, they say in Russia already, they're saying that your work's going to be forgotten <laughs> soon. <laughs> and <you're> like, well, <laughs> and that kind of sums it up. And, and I think,
1: <laughs> yes, in Russia, you will soon be forgotten. And, to, and at a point... Instead of it hurting, it maybe it still hurts a little bit on some level, but instead of it a hurting, it becomes material. You know, this is what I write about. Because on, on some levels, it's so funny that you would you know, you'd have dinner with your kid and you'd say something like that. But on the other hand, what kind of pain and insecurity
0: must you manifest yourself to be able to do that to your kid? It's not a happy place where that comes from. You alluded to this earlier. As much as little failure is about self-examination, it is about trying to understand them. Trying, trying, trying. And they, they have a very different,
1: obviously they have a very different conception of themselves that I do. And at one point my mother says, you really don't know me. I almost take umbrage because I think, wow, I, I'm, you know, I'm almost getting a PhD in my parents for the last X amount of years and trying to understand who they are, going back to Russia almost every year, trying to figure out the, the circumstances under which they became adults. And it's still not enough. It really became a kind of project for me to, to, to figure out who they are and by association to figure out how I became who I am. We're very different people, and I think that that's a big shock to my parents because in Russia you are supposed to be an extension of your parents. You do what they say, you honor them unflinchingly, you, you only celebrate them, you don't look at them critically. But that's not what a writer is. A writer is very different. You know, and There's a quote by, I think it's Milos, who said, "'Once a writer is born, a family dies.'" I'm misquoting it, but something like that. I mean, I hope the family doesn't die, but there is something of that. What does a writer deal with more than anything else? And that's the circumstances under which she or he was born, grew up, uh, learned to love, uh, learned to hate. These are the important parts about being a writer. And without your family, even if you write
0: about you know science fiction or fantasy, that still is the template. I want to circle back to Oberlin for a little bit Mm -hmm. and talk about the writing, because you talk about, at Oberlin, how... You met, for you, one of the best writing teachers, and then also for a semester, one of at least for you, one yes. of the worst writing oh teachers. Oh, my
1: God. Oh, my God. Yes, yes, and that's, that's about right in terms of the, the range. The best writing teacher was somebody who loved what I was doing, realized I needed a lot of work, put in so much time in reading my works that, you know, way beyond the call of duty, um, was instrumental in, in getting my first novel in shape, and gave me really the bravery. And it basically said, you know, what you write about has meaning. And there was a teacher from the very sort of, Gordon Lish is an editor who, uh, was Raymond Carver's editor in a very specific style of writing and she was a disciple of his and so we would go around the room reading our works and whenever she heard a, first, a sentence that didn't ring true she would say stop and that, that was it. So most people didn't get past their first sentence. And then I began to, began to write in this very kind of pretentious minimalist way that she wanted. And she was very happy with that, but it derailed my writing for a very long time. And so that was a disaster. And and when I began to teach at at Columbia, where I teach now, I I thought, I got to be open to whatever these students produce. I can't impose any kind of style on that. That's terrible. Everyone has their own voice. You have to cultivate that voice, but you can't give them a voice, which is what that teacher was trying to do.
0: Around that same time, you were working on the Only Children documentary with John. I started to wonder if all that time spent in front of the camera and you write about how you were being very deliberately provocative and outrageous mm-hmm. in front of the camera certainly in the case of promoting Little Failure there's a very high profile book trailer that has come out for that but you also have done other trailers yeah. before yeah. I'm just wondering if the roots of your being comfortable performing the role of Gary Steingart author <clears throat> I would go back even further I would go back to Hebrew school where I
1: would get up in front of all these kids and with my accented English read these stories I would read them I would try to read them in a funny way I would try to do voices the different characters and accents under different circumstances I could have gone to Hollywood and and worked on screenplays and maybe try to do a lot of people suggest that I do one man shows which is I I don't have enough ativan to sort of get me through a a stand up act but you know there is a, a very hammy side of me which started very early on. I think that starts with a lot of kids who become, you know, performers is that they're hated growing up and then they learn to turn it around using their, uh, using humor, using their very fear of other people to sort of launch themselves into other people. So that, that was a possibility, I think. But uh, for some stupid reason, I became a literary writer, which I had no idea, you know, that things would get so bad for literary writing. But
0: here we are. But you at a sort of interesting cross section where you, can get like both Jonathan Franzen and James Franklin to call up and say like, "Hey, want to be yeah. in my that video?" That's yeah, very,
1: very sweet of them. Everyone was very sweet. Rashida Jones was incredibly sweet to do this. Uh, Alex Karpovsky from Girls. Uh, people are very nice to me, and I, and, and I try to be very nice to others. Uh, I, I blurbed every book in existence, so I think we're all in this together. We've got to help everyone out. So I'm very lucky that all these nice people came together. Paul Giamatti did another trailer with me. I mean, it's been it's been a nice trip.
0: You talk a little bit in the memoir. About how, as you were rereading your three novels, you were kind of struck by just how, I mean, you always knew that you were mining your life through yes. your fiction, but reading them with the intent of figuring out your life in a fictional form, you were like,
1: my god, did I mine yeah. my life? Yeah, I didn't even realize to the extent I was mining it. Certainly in two books, a Super Sad and a Russian Debutante's Handbook, Absurdist Sandwich featured a 325 pound protagonist was not exactly me, except couple of details. The Circumcision Gone Bad. You know, this memoir almost is a way for me to say, hey, um, why don't I take a break from writing about aspects of my life? Because the memoir gives it all away. There's very little left. I have to live more so that I can have something for a future memoir. But at this point, we've exhausted so much of the material that the next book has to be about something wildly different.
0: Have you gotten far along into that process yet? Or are you still no, not no, no, not?
1: no, no. I'll be promoting this thing for the next half year, so there's no time to really think about it.
0: In the meantime, what have you been reading?
1: I've been reading, I'm in the middle of The Unwinding, George Packer's excellent book about America. It's really fascinating, you know, and this is goes back to the idea that I was living so much inside this very particular immigrant milieu and then a Hebrew school milieu and all this different stuff in, uh, in Queens that I never really understood what the hell was going on in the rest of the country. The hardship that people who aren't immigrants face, the, the working class, the you know, Hispanic, black people, I mean, it, it just wasn't part of our life. We just didn't know what... what What happened beyond the confines of middle-class queens, so much of George Packer's book, The Unwinding, is set during that period when I was coming of age, the 80s. And some of it seems familiar to me, but I really existed on a different planet. And I, I was still so Russian that I couldn't really understand what America was other than this completely unexplainable land. You know, I'd watch television. That was sort of the glue that united me with other people, although my parents didn't allow me a TV until I was close to my bar mitzvah, but I watched it at my grandmother's house, and I was just so confused. You know, I would watch Gilligan's Island, and I would think, why can't America rescue the millionaire and his wife? They're so important. Surely they would start in a high-end rescue mission to find this guy. And, and I wanted to be the millionaire and his wife. Thurston Hal Third, the third was, was kind of a role model for me at that point. That's all I wanted to be, because we were poor. In Hebrew school, many kids were much richer, and, and my dream was, you know, that I would wear that ascot that he wore and talk in that accent, and which was very different from my Russian accent, obviously. So... Reading The Unwinding is this wonderful way for me to get acquainted with the hardships of others, which I understand. You know, we were my grandmother was getting government cheese at that point, and we were eating, getting food stamps and stuff like that. But but we were, you know, my parents came with so many advanced degrees and all that stuff that our 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 future was kind of set. We didn't really realize it, but we were eventually going to enter the middle class. and, And but we didn't quite. Or I didn't realize at that point, being the young Republican that I was, that for many people structurally the country just wasn't going to allow them to become middle class. And that many people, especially in, in, in manufacturing and other places, were about to lose the toehold that they had on, on being in the middle class. And so The Unwinding is, is this perfect kind of book that I wish I could, had the capacity to read when I was 11 or 12 and it was this self-righteous Republican jackass. How about fiction? But, you know, I haven't really, I mean, I've been reading the, the, the British greats I feel like i haven't i don't have enough british I, i've read all the russians obviously so this summer has been you know middle march and david copperfield pride and prejudice shocking that you know i call myself a writer but have so little acquaintance with i always thought that there were that those books weren't emotional enough you know in russian fiction everyone's always crying and rending, beating their breasts ripping their shirts and etc whereas uh, british fiction always seemed to be so mannered and uh, not enough breast beating but i love these books they're intellectually incredibly stimulating and you just have to know that underneath the intellectual exterior, there's, there's a lot of shirt rendering going on.
0: As you pointed out briefly earlier, here we are doing an interview in your apartment, two blocks from your high school years. But certainly over the last half hour or so, we've found out that I mean, you're a different person. To, or, uh, it sounds like a happier person today. I would say I know more who I am. But I had no idea for so long who I was,
1: you know. So much of my life was... Being in opposition to being an immigrant, trying to be trying to be an American with a capital A, which I thought meant being rich and powerful and lording it over other people. <laughs> that was my conception of what being an American was. You know, you, you emigrate from the paradise, the workers' paradise, and you come to this country and what you're told is that it's a stratified country and you're on top or you're not. And that's why I thought I was. I was I, I saw a movie like Wall Street and I thought, well, the lesson is don't get caught do all the inside training you want, just don't get caught.
0: And and you I thought J.R. Ewing was the hero? I thought J.R. Ewing was
1: incredible. I wanted to destroy people's lives like that, too. I thought, here I was. Everyone thought I was nothing in, in school. I was this immigrant who was wearing T-shirts that other people had donated to us because we couldn't afford our own. So I wanted to be the very opposite. And I think that's how many fortunes are made from those kinds of beginnings. But that wasn't me. I, I, I was always somebody who wanted to be a creative person. Uh, always Writing was always the most comforting part of my life. And the great blessing that I've encountered is, is that I was able to make a life out of it somehow. Shocking. You know, nobody makes a life out of it anymore, but somehow I got very lucky. Who knows what the future will bring, but for now, good Lord, I'm, I'm pretty happy.
0: Well, I'm sure that I'm not the first and will be far from the last person to suggest that little failure will be a big success. Oh, thank you. I have been talking with the author, Gary Steingart. The book is published by Random House. This episode of Life Stories has been brought to you by BuzzFeed. I'm Ron Hogan. Thank you for listening. And if you are subscribed on iTunes, thank you for that. If you're not, it's very easy to do. And I hope that either way, you will join me again for another episode soon. Take care.